始めWelcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is the War Room. I'm General Lance, your host, and today here with me, uh, talking about the situation in the Ukraine, situations we're dealing with the CIA and uh, you know frontmen, uh, is our Celtic War Chief. How are you doing, brother? Good. How are you doing? Good. I'm happy to have you on, man. We we go back a way long time. Do you mind just giving the audience some background as far as who you are and you know all that kind of stuff? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm just a American Celt. You know, my ancestry goes back to the founding stock of this country and this nation. And so, you know, I've got that Celtic and Anglo sort of mix, just atypical of the Northeast, if you will, of uh, the United States. And I just have a vested interest in this country's future and my people. And, you know, that's why I get into these topics and try to give a contrarian analysis so that we're not captivated by you know, propaganda and things like that, that can lead us astray. You know what I'm saying, brother? Yeah, absolutely, man. And like, that's part of the deal with uh, Lance's Legion, obviously. It's not necessarily to be contrarian, but to be right. And I think that the issue with war, like, I'm sure you've seen all this stuff with like the Ukraine-Russian war. And um, I think we linked up on this Peter Zian, uh, you know, Joe Rogan podcast thing. It's just so obvious, um, I guess it's obfuscation of the truth, but it's propaganda, right? And so, like, you know, you see it from both sides. You see it from, obviously, the Russian side, like, who make up a faction of the PRC and Iran. But also you see it from the United States and NATO. You see it, you know, in the Ukrainian propaganda. You see it with, like, liberals and the BBC, etc. But it's always very interesting. I mean, I'm sure you're aware of, like, uh, that CIA op called Operation Mockingbird and how people yes. are able to, yeah, propagate an idea. So, like, people don't really understand how, um, how do you say, uh, you know, practically that happens. Well, this is how it happens. Basically, the CIA, this, you know, Central Intelligence, what they do is they form an asset, right? That asset isn't necessarily a CIA agent. What they do is they, they, they get their, uh, you know, uh, phalluses hard, um, every time, like, a, a government op comes up to them. And uh, basically, it's usually kind of like a certain demographic, usually for people within like a, like a homosexual or something, which in this case it is. So Peter <laughs> Zian, Peter Zian uh, is an individual who has a like degree from like a very out of the way place from Northeast Missouri State University. And then basically he got his postgraduate study from another no name university. But he has been propagated as the, like, I don't know if you guys have seen it personally on Spotify or if you see it on YouTube, but it's like you speak to this guy about this guy 
and he's on the tip of everyone's tongue referencing him as far as the incisive geopolitical insight into what's happening in Russia-Ukraine. Right, and so I was right. like, oh my God. And so we watched it together, this episode with Joe Rogan. And so I, I felt like it was very important that we kind of balance out this obvious, like, view that has a, you know, a biased view. So I figured I would invite you on because you're an expert of many sorts. And I feel like you're way more qualified than this guy. But uh, without further ado, I mean, what do you think overall of that, like, uh, interview? What was your vibe? So the vibe um, is he kind of was tailoring his message as he went and it seemed like they talked about basically four topics you know they talked about Russia they talked about China they then talked about the US Mexico and you know they got off they kind of had a tangent about environmentalism and uh, EV technologies or or alternative uh, green energy type crap Um, but if you watch within each of those topics you know, he gave, you know, with Russia, it was heavily, I would say it was very biased. Okay. There were some things he, I would, I would agree with him on, but a lot of it was, was just very mean, like just repeat regurgitating kind of memes and not giving, there's just too much nuance going on with Ukraine and Russia that you're really going to miss the mark if you just take the generalizations he was making. China, he got like a little bit more specific, you know, a little bit more uh, like not necessarily balanced. I, I still think he was missing the mark. But and then with America and Mexico, again, he said a lot of things that were true. But, you know, so it's I noticed that, you know, the, you know, that they talked about Russia first and they kind of went through it so quickly. And that's where I saw where a lot of the propaganda kind of was like messaging was being made which makes sense because that's what the active uh war zone right now is and as you know fifth generation warfare um i have to smother every node of influence whether it be a pro a podcast like joe rogan or you know the twitter sphere or some other sphere of media including legacy media on fox news or cnn I have to make sure all these nodes are smothered with propaganda because I have forces, in this case, proxy forces via Ukraine, engaged in an actual combat, right? So that's kind of like the, the meat and potatoes of kind of what I saw in the vibe I was getting from him was just that, you know, either A, he knows better and he's doing his job as an, as an asset, just as you described, you know, where he may not have gotten like direct uh, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for directives from like a, a CIA person but they know that this guy is just in his own mindset is going to give the narrative that they want you know what I mean so that's why like you said with Operation Mockingbird it's not necessarily this man is on the payroll of the CIA and he's an actual agent it's more like we're putting in place people that have through their career eaten up the you know cool drink drank the kool-aid and eaten up the um the propaganda that we've given and so they're just regurgitating on their own our narrative right and and then you know this that way that person builds his career on a bias right and he's not going to backtrack his bias right that's when you know people are are honest is when you see them backtrack when you see them say hey i got this wrong you never really see that from people like this you know so 
that's the vibe I was getting was, okay, he's heavily propagandizing the Russia. And then the other topics, the other three topics were a little bit less, but there still was, you know, and it makes sense because we're in a current, uh, you know, actual war and fifth gen war with Russia right now. Of course. And, you know, it's interesting that you say that because, I mean, I guess the, the, the thing that we're trying to go for here is we're just going to review the things that, uh, you know, this individual said, but there are too many lies to parse, but actually that's not even a lie because it, what it really is, is, uh, there's a saying, it's not a lie that's most harmful. It's truth deployed with insidious intent. And so like mm. nothing necessarily he said was by itself a f- factually like incorrect. It was the way that he strung them together and orchestrated these facts that completely missed the mark as far as like their significance. It's like cherry picking, for instance, right? That's all mm-hmm. it is. And so uh, we're just gonna for for this uh, war room because like I don't want to spend too much time. Let's just focus on the most salient things. And I wanted your, to pick your perspective about like the most jarring things he said about Russia that were either untrue or like needed context. And I kind of wanted to ask you questions about that. On a later time, we'll talk about Mexico and the renewable energy crisis, obviously. But I think we should focus on one thing and then another. What do you think? Yeah, I think so too. Cause it, it's insane how in 15, the first 15 minutes, almost every sentence he uttered, like we have to unpack, you know? So yeah, we can take our time and like, and I think a lot of people are, are very interested in what's going on in Russia. So it's important that we attack that first. Cause as I said, in those four topics that he talked about, Russia was the one that was heavily propagandized, right? So you know, we can spend time on that and unpacking it so that our audience and have a better understanding of what's really going on because that's the most pertinent thing that's happening, right? So, no, of course, of course. Well, anyway, let's just get started here. I have like a list of things that he started off with, and I think uh, the most jarring thing that I remember is his analysis overall about, um, not necessarily demographics, but actually, for instance, internal religion of the, uh, of the East, and it's like like a uh, role and uh, propaganda theme and uh, or whatever he calls it and basically he says that like the patriarch Kirill like has framed this this uh, conflict between Russia or the Russian aligned like faction the CSTO uh, which is their equivalent of NATO right and to NATO and basically pitted a a theme which is you know we're fighting against literally people that are demonic that are like pedophiles that are homosexuals and stuff like that and he kind of he kind of scoffs it off but i'm like well like aren't isn't i mean who is epstein like who like bro like (laughs) you you, i mean you yourself are that like (laughs) i mean i mean bro (laughs) you know yeah i think people wouldn't pick up on that if you didn't like google his background like i did And, and basically this guy is exactly what patriarch kirill is is uh you know indicting the west for, of being you know what i mean and so i wanted your perspective on it and see we'll see what you had to say about it yeah so it first off um what zion said uh at that at that junction in the podcast um when they mentioned like how what kind of propaganda either side is producing and and he said, you know, he said gay demons or something like that. I can't remember, but he's like, you know, that that's what they're saying. That's what they're calling the NATO forces um, that, you know, you're fighting against uh, 
all these uh, aspects that are degenerate, um, homosexuality, all these things. And it's funny because Zihan and uh, Zihan like kind of communicated it as how ridiculous, you know, how how low of them to have propaganda like that. I mean, you know, weak, right? And it's funny because if you look at World War One, you know, we literally called and had cartoons of the Germans as like literally like goblins and demons and, that were invading, uh, you know, the Netherlands and and, um, and Belgium, right, right. And that was propaganda that was used to motivate conscripts to go and fight in World War One, right. I mean, little cartoons of like a demon-looking, devil-looking German guy in a German outfit, and the, you know, the rape of Belgium, right. And we've used propaganda like that. All you know, competing forces are going to have. You're going to have. Pro- you got to create. Keep constantly cultivating a narrative with propaganda. And you know, sometimes you know you might have propaganda that's tailored for the middle classes. So, for example, in Russia, they're now making the middle classes understand that this isn't a war with Ukraine. This isn't a war with. Uh, the Ukrainian people. This is a war with NATO. This is a NATO war. And like all propaganda, there's half truth there, right? That if NATO didn't support and Europe didn't support uh, Ukraine right now with weapons, with supplies, ammunition specifically, um, they would have been they would have been crumbling like pretty quickly, you know. So in a way, in a way, it is a war pretty much with NATO. This is a pra- proxy NATO war right now with Russia. But then with the lower classes, you know, they're going to get more into the memes. They're going to get more into the memeomic uh, warfare where these are gay demons. And they're probably taking pictures of all the gay pride parades we have here now. I mean, heck, a Russian propagandist right now probably has it so easy. He just goes on Google's uh, USA Gay Pride or USA Trainee Story Hour. He's got plenty of photos to make dozens of memes to infect the uh, social media battle space, right? Yeah, I, mean, I don't even and, want to interject, but like, have you seen that that uh, article has been floating around of like a gay couple that's adopted uh, children to pimp them out, like to their you know LGBT yes. community? You know, yes, it's absolutely horrific. And again, that's fuel. That's you know, we can get deeper into this because you know, there's it's actually it almost feels like we're just giving them ammunition nonstop. Um, not just for Russia, for but for China, for for all these countries. And you have to remember, like, whenever there's a battle like this, whenever there's compete, you know, especially NATO or the U.S. versus China or Russia or maybe even Iran in the future, um, the third world is watching, right? The third world is watching. They want to see like who really is the top dog, right? And if the third world is watching and they see Russians are fighting what they think is theirs, you know, more nationalistic messaging, and they look at the West and we're waving gay flags and we don't like the family unit. And, you know, for example, you know, we have gay people adopting these children, absolutely horrific things. Well, the third world has a much stronger reaction to that. And they're going to be, so you're winning over, you know, this meme, these memes and this propaganda isn't just for your immediate audience. You know, there's all these tailored, aspects that's why propaganda and psyops is actually now very involved and heavily invested process 
Uh, and it's not just for your local populace or your enemy's populace, but now you have, to, you, know, you have the whole world watching. Everybody's got a cell phone now. Everybody's got the internet now. And you can win, win hearts and minds through all these different actions. So it's not surprising at all that the Russian propaganda, whether or not these propagandists themselves are degenerate and are doing gross things behind scenes, we all, I mean, I'm sure it's safe to assume there's probably a whole load of oligarchy in Russia that are disgusting, right? I mean, that's but, everywhere. That's everywhere. Right, that's what? everywhere. And yeah. it's, 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 regard, it's irregardless that, you know, there, what, what more propaganda do I have? Like, what more material um, is there floating out there? The majority of the material is our, is the American, you know, degeneracy. And I can just scoop that up and, the, you know, get these big scoops of it and make, you know, just endless ammunition of memes, articles, uh, right. I mean, on, the irony, on RT. Yeah, the irony is that, like, uh, so before Ukraine got involved with Russia in the war, there were zero gay pride um, marches in Kiev, for instance, right? And, uh, you know, I think the funniest thing is that for whatever reason, um, as like NATO became more entrenched in Ukraine, uh, you know, you see not only gay prides like bullshit happening, but also like a George Floyd flags and like, you know, Black Lives Matter flags. And it's like, dude, they're like, I mean, aside from the African immigrants that like, um, have, were actually immigrating into Ukraine and emigrated out when the war yes. happened. Yes. Yes. You know, like they're like, why, why do you have a sign like that makes no sense? You know what I mean? And, uh, the thing is though, is that one side institutionally pushes this stuff and the other side does it incidentally. And I feel like, um, I guess the point being is that one has a stronger case to be made. And let's not forget that the Russians are very powerful when it comes to like, uh, human intel, but human psyops, right? Like a lot of, uh, liberal, like, like modern liberal takes come from the 1920s to 1960s, uh, communist Soviet psyops that took place in Hollywood, etc., And that ultimately changed the fabric, the social fabric of the United States. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, and, and that's the funny thing though, is that they're, they're inheritors of, of that original psyop. And then basically, I mean, we're dealing with a country that's still very capable intelligence wise and in shaping narratives, et cetera. But I won't go into that detail too far, but I guess just moving on from that, that perspective, he talked about, for instance, population pyramids, right? Um, not just in China, but in Russia and about how this would be the last year that the Russians would be able to like levy a, a, a you know, significant amount or a number of men, fighting age males capable of fighting with, uh, you know, reserve training background to fight their wars. And I kind of wanted your perspective on it. And I have my own perspective of offer after, but what what do you think about that comment? Yeah. So here, here's the thing about demographics. Here's some credit that, or here, here's a good way to kind of segue. Why are people, you know, we, in the beginning, you know, you mentioned how, and that people are, you know, he is trending all over the place. I've never clicked on any of his videos and they're trending all over my YouTube recommended. And, and which is funny because I'm, I'm always watching videos on geopolitical things and I've never gotten him recommended before. You know, I've been watching these kinds of things and watching channels and, and this topic. You would think that I would have gotten recommended 
I would have had his recommendation on my YouTube feed way earlier, but it never, it never did until recently. And that's even how I stumbled upon Joe Rogan's podcast. I saw lots of, you know, I saw it trending on social media. And the reason why, part of why people I feel are gravitating to him is he is giving an analysis where, you know, he talks a lot about geography and demographics. And, you know, if you've been in the right wing spaces, like, you, you would, you know, it, to me, it's like a no brainer that geography and demographics are like key to your analysis and you should be shaping that as like part of your foundational piece. And, but you understand like the common people now. I mean, you know, you know, you see those videos where they go to like, they have like a microphone and they go to like people on the street and say, Hey, where is, uh, where's the United States located on this map? And they can't even find, they can't even like pick it, you know, let alone Ukraine, let alone Iraq. And, you know, also people have no idea the demographic declines that have been going on pretty much in every country except for uh, the African nations. Um, I think uh, the funniest thing, the funniest thing that I saw, by the way, on that that thing was uh, someone was asking a question to this college student girl where Afghanistan is. And she literally pointed at West Virginia unironically. And I thought that was hilarious. I mean, hey, it's, it's a similar shape, sure. you know. <laughs> like, oh, I mean, mountains and heroin, right? Like, OK, that makes sense. <laughs> You got it. <laughs> Holy crap. Anyway, so, yeah, go, ahead, like, go ahead. I don't want to Yeah, like, so people are like, whoa, you know, like, whoa, I've never heard of these things. Like, whoa, you know, because it just shows you how debased our education has become in uh, mass that you have normies gravitating that, you know, they probably even even heard the term demographics before, you know. And now speaking, uh, that's kind of, been, you know, that's kind of like the lure that I think is helping his promotion. Uh, is that he's he is doing what you should be doing with bringing these uh, attributes here, but I think the demographic part that he kind of just so like in just a, such a crazy rhetoric like I I've never heard before like he said uh, I, I remember at one point he said uh, they want to die on their own terms because that's just absolutely going to happen between 2050 and 2070 simply simply because of the demographic situation that, that they have what cracks me up is and this is why like again i wanted to focus on russia because i mean his rhetoric was way more extreme i mean it was pretty extreme with china too but let's get something straight here that the audience needs to understand you know since the baby boom you know each preceding generation you have gen x gen y now you have gen z coming in all of these gen generations have gotten smaller and smaller, and we're not even anywhere near the even just the baby boomer level. Which, by the way, we call it the baby boom, but uh, that was you know that was coming from a very low, which was the devastation of World War II, right, and the loss of life, the sheer amount of people that were wiped out with that war, right. So the demographic situation that Russia is facing, every nation is facing, okay, in the first world. Not so much in uh, places like Southeast Asia, Africa, and um, some aspects of Latin America. But certainly in Europe, Russia, a lot of the Asian, developed Asian world, like China, Japan, the Koreas, um, the United States, we're all facing this demographic situation at the same time, which 
that really hasn't occurred in history. I mean, if we go back to the Hundred Years' War in the Middle Ages, it kind of was the same, similar situation where you had basically when they're talking about demographics, they're basically saying, do you have an, a robust twenties uh, or teens, twenties, and thirties versus your forties, fifties, and sixties, and, and elderly? It's basically, you know, if, if I were to put it in simple terms, dividing your populace down the middle, where 40 and up are over here, and, you know, 35 and under are over here. And do you have more of these people uh, than the uh, of the latter than the former? So every situation, every country is facing that, except for the United States, if you include the insane amount of immigration that we have. And now you start to understand why, you know, for example, in 2022, we've had 200 to 250,000 people just coming across this border in droves. And everyone's scratching their head, even liberals, when you actually give them the, the data, they're scratching their heads like, how the heck are we sustaining any of this? And you start to realize that, you know, it's because the, the, uh, the uh, populace that, you know, the, host populace that built this nation um white americans we we have just as much of a demographic problem that russia has uh that uh europe has you know the only extreme examples would be japan and uh china right but, and if i don't want to interject here but i think to give some additional context it's also not just about the way he portrays like demographics is almost as if it's, it's just your age group where what's the quality of that demographic group right so like Very I mean, for instance in the united states there is a market decline in iq like uh i think it was uh, 1950s the average iq of the united states was like 105 and for those that don't know like iq is based on a, a scale where like 100 is the average right that was the original scope and basically, right now, we're sitting at somewhere between 92 and 95. And now, like, yes, it is important to just have bodies and math is its own quality. However, like, people don't understand, well, like, what is, I mean, having, I mean, I come from also, like, a, a, a family background that also has recent immigrants as well, right? And so, like, the, the thing is that people don't get is that you need a motivated populist that's capable and young. And the United States has an unmotivated or anti-motivated pop populist, including its host, you know, nucleus ethnic group. And then basically a, a steadily declining quality of, of you know, in, individual personnel. And then also a declining mass of that higher edge personnel. So what's ended up happening are the issues that we're finding now. And so the issue with Zihan is that not necessarily that he's wrong about what's happening uh, demographically in China or in Russia, but that he never flips the mirror and sees that the problem's actually worse domestically than it is abroad. Yes, yes. He just kind of glosses. He, his rhetoric is so intense on their draft demographic problems. It, it, even if he... Even if he was to turn that mirror to us, it's automatically going to sound like a less severe situation because he's like, oh, they're going to die. They're, they're going to like crazy rhetoric like that. When even if he did flip that mirror and mentioned that, oh, by the way, you know, our situation domestically is such and such. Automatically, the viewer has been gaslit into thinking that Russia and China is way more severe. Right. And again, that's where you need you absolutely need a counterbalance. So. 
another note on the demographic situation is just like you said is if i'm going to have a less like i have less people right then i need to make sure that i make i got to put in plans now so that when my population does reach to that lower level i have a high functioning high skilled high productive populace that makes up for the dwindling in sheer number right and uh also he never mentions go ahead yeah sorry i don't want just to add to that point um remember it was putin that used the migrant masses from syria from due to the civil war and stability like that and africa and aimed them at europe right so if migrants and diversity is so good then why is that like crime and basically social decline and like social contiguity has fallen down is because of the fact that putin realizes how much actually migration overwhelming migration can be used as a weapon and it's funny because i read i read uh you know uh nato sources like you know the naval war college etc and it talks about putin's weaponization of immigration i'm like well aren't you the faction that pushes this idea that diversity yeah. is good and that unlimited immigration is good so like how are you able to you know call the the pot and the kettle black when you yourself are you know you're saying two things at once a catch 20 yeah. situation so it's like either immigration is good or it's bad in great numbers and great quantities right so it's just like the stipulation is ridiculous but i'm sorry to, to interrupt but i felt like it was important to add that little perspective there no, no, and and then and then it creates and, it, and what did it do? It created a, a strife in Euro, where uh, Germany and France are upset with Hungary because they're doing everything they can to stop that flow of immigration, uh, as well as Poland and, and others. And then they're getting called fascists. They're getting called Putin simps. And it's like, wait a minute, uh, if you're saying immigration is so great and you're doing it in such crazy numbers in England and France, especially, then Putin's giving you a gift. He's giving you this huge gift, you know, and people really don't understand the situation right now in Europe. I mean, I, I talked to my friends there and, you know, my, my one friend uh, described it as there's just rats everywhere. They're just like like in an infestation. Every city you go to, there's just campsites and people strung across the streets. And it's it's absolutely crazy. Even cities like uh, Vienna and, and um, uh, you know, it's, it's becoming very widespread. So. Yeah, absolutely ridiculous double talk going on. And again, with the demographics is if I know that I'm going to have that situation in the future and I want to have the most skilled, most capable populace in that future, well, then I need to make sure I'm doing strategic moves now to set that up. Because if I make if I succeed in the strategic moves now, while I still have, for example, enough young men to make young men to make it happen or the industrial capacity to make it happen. Then that means, you know, if I succeed in doing these moves now to set us up for that future, then that means the likelihood of my demographic replenishment, you know, re restrengthening of birth rates is going to be more certain. What cracks me up about him is he doesn't he doesn't once mention that, yes, you can have demographic decline, but people underestimate how rapidly you can replenish that. Okay. Exactly. And and that's the thing. His entire analysis is unidynamic. And what I mean by that, it's like, you know, it's Malthusian in a way. It's, it's saying, well, this is going to happen according to these trends under these conditions, blah, blah, blah. This is going to happen. No. When the reality is 
yes, under these conditions, under this reality right now in this moment, like it may happen. However, as we all know, technology and and personal initiative and agency definitely has an effect on what people can do because we're not just inordinate materialistic things. We have agency. And so, like, um, I mean, I guess a good example, a counter argument to his example that is based in historical fact is, uh, for instance, you know, the replenishment of populations after significant epidemics or wars or whatever. And like the additional thing that he's not taking into account um, is the fact that the entire population bracket that's like dying off. Well, like, frankly, they're more of a of a liability than an asset. And I, I mean that in a, a, like a, the most positive way I can, but like, think about the amount of resources it takes to sustain these people, the, uh, retirement pensions, the, the, you know, the, the way that they selfishly spend the, um, you know, the inordinate consumption that they do. And basically, like, just, just basically a geriatric society that kind of stifles the youth and ha- it, it, you know, under its mass has to like, carry the rest of a civilization on its back and so the way i see it personally it's a positive thing that these people are like you know going elsewhere because what ends up happening is for healthy population pyramids and healthy civilizations in reality you don't need to live past 60 and the reality is that like you know a healthy population pyramid is like a pyramid it's not a perfect rectangle it's not an inverted pyramid it's a pyramid you know but i get carried away no, it's it's everything you said there is exactly the kind of you know information you need we need to talk about because you get a lot of doom and gloom. There's just so much doom and gloom going on when in reality this passing of a, of the guard, if you will, of these older generations from the baby boom uh, past theoretically that, as you said, there would be a coming explosion of internal economy growth. Because now you, you you have this excess that's of, of costs removed, and that brings a deflationary aspect, right, to assets like housing. And what do young people, you know, we could talk all day about modernity and the cultural rot that we have, and especially with social media. But really, uh, one of the main drivers of why people are getting married later in life and not having kids sooner, etc., is economic. I can't afford it. I can't afford this house. I can't afford this car. I can't afford the daycare for these kids. Well, if the how if one of those inputs, for example, housing, were to drop, right, and become more affordable, well, then that's one that's one closer step that people are going to feel more confident to take the risks of getting married and having kids. But instead, at least here in the United States, our oligarchy does not want that to happen. They want to keep things going inflated. So they maintain their wealth, right? Or at least position themselves well when we have that deflationary cycle. And that's why another reason why all this immigration is here. I think we already would have had a internal uh, explosion economically from the from the millennial generation and the Gen X generation together, getting out there, having families and buying houses. Instead, because of the insane amount of immigration we've had here in the U.S., that all got stifled. That all got pushed off and delayed, maybe indefinitely, if they keep bringing in people at the rate that they are now under under Biden. And and so people really underestimate, and instead are now overestimating. Oh, the, uh, everyone's in decline. And his rhetoric, like he literally said, they want to die on their own terms. 
absolutely ridiculous. What they're doing is they're they're using the the production capacity that they have and the the use that they have to gain footholds in strategic locations that they need to do or they feel that they need to do, right? And that is going to set them up for quite a recovery and revival down the line, right? Kind of like how Japan, he mentions in the podcast Japan very quickly, and then we'll go back to Russia, how you know they saw their demographic decline way ahead of time. And that's why they made so they drove such economic innovation and drove their companies to be international, um, so that a lot of people's economies are integrated with theirs, and and vice versa. So, kind of helping giving cushion economically down the line, right?、Mm-hmm. So, that's all that you know. Russia, China, these countries are starting to do, and they're just doing it like. With you know, with way more balls and guts, right? Whereas the United States, we seem to be every policy is going in the opposite direction, you know. So、um, it reminds I mean, me, I, like it reminds me too. Remember that China has this demographic oddity, which has far more males than females, and people like him. So, okay, to give background to to you legionaries out there, like there's this running、um, school of thought in academia that like Jared Diamond types. Who believe that, like, basically,、uh, geopolitical and material conditions dictate the entirety of your life. That, like, your, you know, nurture is your environment. There's nothing you can do to shape your environment, right? Like, you're just a helpless slave, and that, that nothing can change except for the happenstance of being born in one place or another. This way, it absolves the individual of of responsibility of agency. And ultimately, that's that's the basically like the calling card of a liberal is that like basically nothing's your really your fault. You have no agency. Everything is outside of your control. And so they apply this lens to like geopolitical takes, right? And so his take is that、um, Russia is setting to die on its own terms. But in reality, what it is doing is setting the condition for the future. Of revitalizing its industrial base, as we see, like the, the heartland of the world industrially is in East China, and is in Russia. People don't know this, but it's not in in the West anymore, obviously. And、uh, I remember reading this article too, especially from I think it was Defense Now or some other、uh, War on the Rocks. But basically. They've been disappointed with how slow、uh, the military-industrial base has been to revitalize domestically. That it's been too slow. That we have been unable to keep up with the orders that Ukraine has been consuming artillery shells, etc. But also the supply chain is compromised. It's compromised by those very belligerents who are taking part in the Ukrainian war,、um, and people don't recognize the fact that, like for instance, all our munitions are made domestically in China. All our smart、uh, smart ships are made off, you know, ninety ninety miles off the coast of the PRC. Those smart ships obviously go into our planes and everything else, but also into our cars. So, strategically speaking,、um, the center of gravity of the world rests in the hands of the Iranians, the Russians, and the Chinese. And also now they have an excess of population, especially China, of young men who get no pussy, who are motivated to go to war. Right, so、yeah. like that's.、Yeah. I'm serious. <laughs> like, like, like China. You know, people at first for a long time. We'll, we'll go back to Russia because、um, don't want to get too sidetracked here. But you know,、uh, you know, I used to think they're not going to do invade Taiwan, but then I realized they're going to do it no matter what because 
if you have all these young males who, you know, they're not going to have a woman in their life and the Chinese economy is changing and some of that industrial base is leaving, well, you're going to have a lot of unemployed people. I mean, you got a billion people in your country, right? So, you know, this is also a way, you know, when you have a lot of unhappy men, you can have a problem on your hands domestically, you know, revolts and things like that. And this would be a way to like manage it is, all right, I'm going to, I'm just going to throw these bodies hard and fast at an objective and mm-hmm. whether or not that objective pays like crazy dividends or anything like that doesn't really matter because the, the objective itself, the war itself is solving a problem. For me, yeah, right? exactly. And, and I don't know if you saw this, but there's also this uh, misconstrual by, by Zihan about the economic circumstance of the PRC. So the PRC has this um, policy, which if you invest, for instance, in hard capital in China, for instance, like iPhones or uh, Apple or whatever, people think, uh, for instance, shareholders think that you're able to um, pull out to liquidate those assets that are placed in PRC territory. But actually, there's legislation in the PRC that makes it illegal illegal to take both profits rendered by the 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 companies and and hard capital made in that country but also it is illegal to withdraw like uh, capital from that location obviously under pain of like economic blockade for any specific uh, country but basically okay you know all that wealth that we ostensibly have uh, attributed to our gnp is actually a you know a quarter of the size because really what happens is China is keeping that money that we invested in their economy and under no circumstances and they're powerful enough to do this uh, let let it leave their country so yes it might be de- deindustrializing but they also still have all that capital that's been accumulated and can be appropriated to their ends which is which is why they push it towards um, building reserves right. Um, so yeah, let's get back to, to Russia. So I'm going to kind of rattle off point by point. Um, and of course you can interject as I go, uh, go for it. Kind of like the 15, the first 15 minutes of like, of what he was, of, of what he was talking about. Cause he just, he, he went, made so many statements. It was also like one statement after another. So one of the first things he said, you know, he was speaking on Russia and its geography and how he used the, this phraseology of that you need to plug the gaps where there are natural boundaries like mountains or oceans. And in order for Russia to do that, they need to go all the way to the, they need to get into Eastern Europe. So you need to get down into the Caucasus, down into the stands. And they're never going to be able to do this. And one of the reasons why he mentioned was they don't have a highway system. They do everything by rail. And the first thing I want to say is why would that be bad? Like, United States used to have a very robust rail system and that resulted in fewer trucks on the road, right? Fewer congestion on the road too. And in fact, countries around the world, including Europe, would go to cities like Chicago, which had the most, at the time, the most advanced rail infrastructure out there and incredibly well managed. And we've divested from that and gone full, you know, uh, truck, over the road trucking. And what has that done other than make us even more exposed to the fluctuation of of diesel and and crude oil, right? And also, 
you know, even if, if even if they needed a highway system in Russia, there's nothing stopping them from building it. They're acting like that building such a highway system would be impossible task when we've done it, Europe's done it, China has now done it in their country. So it's obviously, you know, Russia, whatever reason, they probably are just managing their production capacity and chose to put their resources to a different thing, probably building weapons, than going full steam into a highway system, especially if your rail system is is, is sufficient at the moment, right? I just wanted to, uh, you know, I'm just going to keep going through other points here. And, and um, uh, the next thing he said is... Um, uh, let's see. Oh, so he he's saying how they need to plug these points. They need to go and they need you know, they need to be involved in the Eastern Europe. They need to be involved in the Caucasus and things like that. Every country, every country, you have to do this. Now, the United States is the kind of like exception to this because we only have to plug one area, and that's our southern border. We have oceans on either side. Canada is pretty much a, you know, a, a sometimes a vassal state or sometimes just, you know, a, a direct ally, right? And even if they weren't, you know, you, you, they're they're pretty much up in the Arctic, you know, and it's sheer wilderness up there. So we have this luxury, and that's why you have this term in uh, in military circles and DOD of Fortress America, which is basically it's almost impossible to, you know, if you were to actually try and physically conquer this uh, landmass, right? Whereas other countries don't have that luxury, right? They don't have, um, you know, they have to they have to take some geographic choke points. For example, Israel constantly wants to invade Lebanon. Why? Because if they get up there and they take the full heights, you know, they have the Golan Heights, but the heights continues up, right, further into Lebanon. Well, if they control all the the heights, and on the other side of the heights, well, that's a much better geographic defensive position than not. Right. That's why they're always obsessed with southern Syria. That's why they're always obsessed with invading Lebanon and did and did and did invade Lebanon twice. Right. Of course. Unsuccess- and unsuccessfully and, each time. Yeah. No. And and that's definitely a, like interdictionary policy. I, you know, I tell you what, let's, uh, let's take a little smoke break here and we'll like ca- catch up where we left off just right now. OK. All right. All right. It's good to be back. We had to step out for a smoke break. You know, the underground layer was too filled with, uh, you know, talking and stuff. So we had to get back. But anyway, we're just talking about Israel and interdiction in like the region. I kind of wanted you to uh, pick up where we left off there, War Chief. Can you go ahead and start us off? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I was using uh, I was using Israel as an example because it's it's you know, it's a very small nation. And they're surrounded by opponents, and they've had multiple wars with those opponents, right? And you could see, you know, why would they invade Lebanon two times in a row, three times in a row, southern Syria? Because those Golan Heights, those mountains that go up into Lebanon, um, that's a geographic feature that if you gain control over it, both both sides of it, that's a much easier defensive position, right? So when Zihan goes out here and says Russia needs to take Eastern Europe, they need to take the Caucasus, they need to take the stands, you know, they need to plug these geographic features so that to really give the security that they want. Well, duh. That's what every nation does. And as I said, you know, the United States has just we just have this super cherry picked geographic features. And you know, that's why as I said again, 
you know, they, they dub the United States as Fortress America, you know, other nations don't have that luxury. So he's kind of saying it as if, you know, he's saying that they have to do this, which may, I may or may not agree with. However, I think what Russia can do to kind of counter him, he, he's just saying it in such broad generalization with no nuance. Um, I think Russia has to plug these regions strategically, right? They don't necessarily have to take, like, you know, literally go back to the Soviet Union borders, okay? But they probably need to do it strategically and definitely have influence in these regions uh, un unquestionably, right? Well, the, go ahead. right, just to add to your point, like, the, the reason why... Um, like obviously economically it matters the the ukrainian like basin is a huge wheat production area but uh the most important aspect is unfettered access to a warm water port because like, if you look at, mm. at uh, russia they all have like above the arctic circle or near ports like vladivostok on the eastern half is their only like port significant base and uh, it obviously has some significant weather issues to overcome. And then you have the Baltic and then you have Murmansk, which is like on the Arctic Ocean. So, of course, like it is a strategic imperative that Crimea is within the Russian Federation's control. Um, but like anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. Continue. Yeah. And he's he's making it sound like um, no, we wouldn't be doing the same in his shoes. It's basically what I'm trying to say here. You know, if we were Russia, if we were there and we want what's best for our people and we want to have security and we need to make sure we we have uh, these boxes checked off, the same thing would be going on. So this idea that, you know, kind of like what you were saying earlier about how he makes it seem like there's no agency that, you know, yes, in some cases I have to take a physical location, but there's many ways to go about things. There's many strategies that Russia could employ. And, you know, it's also, you know, it could, it's just the way he, the way he just explains it, you know, and the reason why I'm going through the first 15 minutes of the podcast, uh, point for point is, you know, I, I'm sure your audience, you know, uh, may be aware that people on the uh, left or people well connected in DC, they kind of hit you with a word sound. They kind of hit you, you know, speaking very quickly and they're saying lots of things in a very short uh, breath and it kind of inoculates your the normal sort of viewer that's why if you watch the podcast joe rogan is going like oh ooh, oh he's like sighing and like he's just getting inoculated by him speaking and artic and uh, very quickly with all these points you know whereas if i was sitting there 10 times i would have in those first 10 minutes i'd be like whoa 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 wait a minute, wait a minute you can't just say this this and this like all back to back nonchalant right so that's kind of what i'm doing here i'm trying to but haven't you done acid man <laughs> dude yeah didn't he bring that up joe rogan always seems to bring up some kind of drug like come on man <laughs> yeah the guy always like i think he's so fried mentally that like i mean i guess the format of his show is not to contradict his his guests so i i think to measure it is important but but also, like, you know, the guy, like, also is probably not at all, A, interested, or B, like, you know, involved with this. I'm pretty sure he, Joe Rogan was coerced in some form or another or influenced to have this guy on, you know? Yeah, it, it is kind of odd, um, the timing. And also, he was only, you know, usually Joe's podcast, they kind of 
little less structured, you know, and it's it's more con- conversationalist, right? And that didn't seem like that, at least for the first 30 minutes, right, of that podcast. It, it didn't feel like that. It was felt it felt like he not I wouldn't say scripted, but like it did feel kind of not his usual vibe like that you would get, you know? And uh, which, you know, again, makes me feel, especially when, you know, Zion is talking about Russia, that it's just it's really pushing a lot of propaganda. So um, also when he spoke about, you know, Russia needs to get in, you know, needs to expand into these areas. He also was talking about, you know, Joe Rogan, did the, one of the only times he did counter him was he asked the question, uh, what do you think that, you know, NATO, NATO is the one that kind of caused this conflict because he you know nato kept ex- keeps expanding into the east and he did speak on that he said well yes that is part of the part of the equation and i just want to give like some color with that because there's one it's one thing that you have nations joining nato it's another thing that those militaries then become integrated with ours then we deploy weapons to those countries you know, interballistic missiles, um, you know, pretty serious weapons, air bases. And then it's another thing that we actually, uh, you know, we bombed uh, several e- Eastern uh, European countries that, you know, weren't cooperating, if you will. You know, like we had the whole Kosovo situation in the 90s. OK, and we bombed Belgrade. Well, when we bombed Belgrade, you know, a lot of Russians were like, hey, what the F, you know? And culturally, they saw that as we didn't give a shit about uh, Slavs. We didn't give a shit about people that have that kind of cult, uh, culture. And that did damage, you know, to us, right? Because, you know, even at that time when the Soviet Union was collapsing, Russians actually viewed the United States in good light. Next thing you know, a couple months later, we're bombing their uh, kinsmen, if you will, or distant kinsmen, if you will, in that region. And he, you know, of course, Sahin isn't going to mention that. He's not going to mention the actual conflicts we've all, we've had there and bloodshed that has happened there. Um, so is, it isn't just a NATO alliance that's moving forward. It's it, it's a NATO alliance. It's weapons, military integrations, uh, propaganda, you know, psyops, and you know, when when people didn't cooperate, when people didn't go with the the anti-russian agenda you had coups and you had invasions so it's all of this story of the 90s and early 2000s that are that are left out you know and people don't think about this and they don't think about that you know we've antagonized russia uh multiple times you know in georgia in uh in um um what do you call it um i can't think of the word right now it's just escaped me uh uh grozny um the chechens right you know the first chechen war you can argue was very nationalistic these were chechens that wanted to separate from the soviet union and everything um and russia but you know towards the second half of that conflict you know what happened you had all these islamist extremists that were brought up there, brought into their into that region, and became proxy forces, basically, of NATO and the West, causing pain for Russia. And it was a, it was, and it was very similar to what's going on in Ukraine. It was a slugfest, right? And you know that in that war, the Chechen War is, is what prompted uh, Putin's rise because he's the one that started uh, putting in the the right men and the right right mindset and strategy to get that uh, conflict resolved. 
So Zihan is leaving out like all of this context as and, and, and again, this is like the first 15 minutes. And without these, you know, if I mention Kosovo to heck a millennial, let alone a, a Gen Zer, they have no idea what the heck that is. They probably even heard of it, that we were involved there in bombing people. And and, and again, Chechnya and, and Georgia. So the, this is huge context that's involved here. It isn't just, oh, NATO moved here. And, and you know, we made agreements, loose agreements, I would say with the former Soviet Union that no, we wouldn't expand, you know, deep into the Visegrad like regions of Eastern Europe. And then we did, right? And then we bombed people. And then we deployed missiles all over the place in Turkey and, and Romania and etc. So he kind of very quick he acknowledged it. You know, he kinda of acknowledged it like, yes, you know, that's part of the equation. But then he kind of just went right back to just bashing uh Ru- Russia that, oh, they have to take Ukraine, they have to take Poland, they have to take the Baltics. Um, and whether or not he's right, I don't know, you know, for all I know, that is a desire that Russia has to reclaim all that territory. But, you know, right now, I think, you know, the, the point that I'm trying to make here is Zion is leaving out all this context and it's not necessarily fair to color the situation. I mean, maybe you can gloss over it. Maybe you can brush it aside, but all these events are leading up to and including, Hey, you know, Russia, they know they have this demographic situation that's going to be happening. They know that the world is also facing that same situation. Well, look what they've done to us already. Look what they've, you know, little nipples here and there on, along our perimeter, along our frontier. Well, we need to nip this in the bud. So, again, many of these things are kind of inedible, inevitable. And, you know, there's always an option B. I mean, there's always an option where we didn't do the things that we did, that we didn't... Um, antagonize Russia in this way. Maybe things could have been different. You know, I'm not going to 100% be this determinist here, but um, I just wanted to kind of bring that point. And then in that same 15 minutes, you know, we kind of, you know, we he starts talking about how, you know, another thing he said is that it's a multi-decade conflict. I don't necessarily know what he mean. Like, I don't, I can't really foresee, and maybe you can give your input, how this could be multi-decade. I mean, this isn't Afghanistan. This isn't low-intensity fighting going on here this is as high intensity as it gets with pretty much every battle implement that you have being used um i i think that's just a Freud. i don't want to interrupt too hard but like i do think it's a freudian slip on his part because because he says that it's a conflict between ukraine and russia but then he says it's going to be a multi-decade conflict what he really meant was that it's going to be a multi-decade confrontation between the united states and russia not between ukraine and russia because whatever happens within the next few months it will be resolved one way or another and i think frankly by just pure military analysis alone it'll come out in the favor of the russians quite handily now the the objective that we're talking about that he's talking about is like this idea that we have re-entered in his own words uh, a world of the like 19th century where there are basically like you know um, great powers who have proxy wars and small wars conflicts for supremacy and I think what he's referencing is like this thing that they constantly talk about is like the, the, the excuse me the Thucydides trap a bunch of the sounds there but anyway, um, point being is, like, a lot of the time, this guy, 
how do you say this? He he makes Freudian slips and alliterations um, just to get you to c- cognitively conflate two different things. One is the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, and one is the wider conflict which Ukraine serves as a proxy of American power. Well, specifically liberal power, which is you know all of, obviously oligarchs' people, so it's not really American. But that's beside the point. Um, now, like you know we keep on talking about like this conflict and this this thing that's happening and i frankly i mean i'm a lot less sanguine about that most people about russia winning necessarily i do think that they're incurring significant losses i think that they're um finding themselves in a position which is like it also is beneficial for them to 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 take a stand but it's also it comes at a cost you know what i mean it's not it's Mm -hmm. not easy it's not a walk in the park However, I think there are some significant developments which are probably going to improve their situation and, and those of their allied nations, which has to do with um, the balkanization of the Internet. Now, people like don't understand how Ukraine and all these other former Soviet republics came into the grips of the Western powers. Obviously, it's very you know, lucrative personally and aspirational to join the United States. But what is it that really netted this um, international circumstance? I was just reading, for instance, Peter, uh, what's his name, Pete Greer or something like that uh, on the Internet. I think he's pretty good. Um, I don't really disagree with him a lot, but I disagree with him on the concept that, like, Russia is losing. I don't think Russia is losing. I think specifically, strategically speaking, it's winning. Why? Because we're starting to realize, just like the Chinese realized a long time ago, how important it is to control the Internet. Because if you control the Internet, you control the narrative. If you control the narrative, you control how people think and ultimately go towards. And so what hap- what's happening now is a lot of these younger generation, Gen Z, Russians and stuff are like uh, supporters of Navalny and like liberals and like have weird liberal like circumstances and fetishes and stuff and frankly the reason why that is is because of the internet which is an american innovation and it's american dominated and so the best way that russia can proceed into the future and have some stability and avoid these these kind of uh, internet weapons of the uh, psyop weapons is by ser- simply doing what China does, which is a great wall, firewall kind of stru- situation. Or if at some time in the future they're able to like make their internet completely by hardware and otherwise um, independent of of the you know American centered data centers. But I mean, we'll see about that. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah. Um, the the kind of going into um i mean the internet is just the the most intensive uh of fifth gen warfare that node which is comprised of many different nodes of, of many different media formats including social media um probably the most intense space where our governments are leveraging the, their most most of their assets are now being leveraged in that i mean i'm sure you've seen articles recently that um you know, in Germany, they have so many assets and agents devoted to um, infiltrating right-wing stuff that they now have to communicate with with each other so they don't dox each other or a- attack one another. 
you know, because they even lost track of how many people are actually going around pretending to be these right-wing extremists uh, pushing for violence, right? So uh, it's probably the most intense space where the West is leveraging the majority of their resources because, it, you know, the cost input and what you get in return is, is huge, right? Um, you know, if I have some guys, some commentators, media, celebrities, internet celebrities, and they influence an entire pot, a, a good chunk of your population right in Moscow, like right in your capital. I mean, that's, that's weapon, right? That's, that's just as good as me moving a ballistic missile right into Ukraine, right? So, um, yeah, I believe that if you create a situation, a war and a, a direct war, well, now your government can use an imperative to say, okay, well, we're going to censor this censorship, this stuff here, because this is, this is our enemy. Whereas before, you know, the censorship thing is, it's, I mean, we've been seeing it now for, for years. They're slowly censoring any kind of distant voice, obviously domestically. And then now they're censoring any kind of input from abroad, right? And the U.S. is not 100% doing that because their confidence in how brainwashed their populace is domestically, yeah, they're not going to 100%, they're not going to, they're not going to, uh, block uh rt just yet you know russia today so I you mean, can still see there's also yeah, yeah. no significant like you know uh, how do you say ideological how do you say um counterculture going on counterculture yeah yeah there's nothing really powerfully like convincing to be on guard against you know what i mean so it's it is still very difficult to access you know what i mean yeah um but getting back into some of the details that he was talking about um, you know, for example, he started mentioning how that, you know, the Russians were extremely incompetent in the initial phases of the of the invasion of Ukraine. And that's an area that's constant commentary that I actually agreed with him on that. I still can't fathom and understand why the Russian intelligence apparatus completely shit the bed with uh, completely underestimating how resilient the Ukrainian uh men were going to be and how they were very much ready to put up strong resistance um you know yet seven years to gather intelligence between you know the 2014 invasion and now and it, it still boggles my mind that uh they shit the bed there and also you know uh there is you know he he mentions uh there's poor leadership and throughout the command chain of the of the Russian forces. I would agree with that. Um, a lot of that is the legacy from the Soviet era, where, uh, in fact, I think Russia has a certain term for it, some kind of Russian term for it. I can't uh, remember what it is, but it's basically like you have commanders, and, you know, you have a low-level commander who's saying, hey, we've took heavy casualties, we need reinforcements. Then the commander above him says, oh, they didn't take that many casualties. They don't need that many reinforcements. Then the commander above him is, they didn't take any casualties, so we don't need to send reinforcements. And then it finally goes to Putin and says, oh, we achieved victory at that location. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's like a, there's like a phrase where it's like lying our way up the chain um, because of just how the old Soviet Union era was where you could end up in a gulag, right? Yeah, so, you, you just don't, you just don't get bad, bad, um, how do you say you don't give bad uh bad news you know yeah it's your head but he doesn't want to you know so we can all agree that the initial invasion was totally botched both from an intelligence aspect also you know the fact that they spread their forces across such a vast amount of territory as opposed to 
the American style of warfare and invasion was we would have concentrated all of our forces into one location and just spearheaded that shit straight to Kiev. Yeah, um, that's dude. That's the thing is that uh, you know I agree with you. Like the the initial invasion was completely botched. Like period. And I think the thing is their intel was bad, and their intel and so the military operation not only was it poorly conducted. But I think what they meant it as is a show of force and, you know, they they deployed, you know, their more elite forces, their tier two assets like the VDV, etc. At places which they knew that there was going to be some kind of like military, um, you know, how do you say resistance. But I don't think they were ready for the amount of resistance across the whole country. Like, yes, uh, which is which is part of the reason why they were operating in like a, a battalion-sized elements instead of brigades, and instead of uh, like whole divisional lines and stuff like that. I'm sure my Hearts of Iron uh, fans out there are kind of like spurging out about it. But what I'm trying to tell you is that. <laughs> But what I'm trying to tell you is that they were operating almost as a peacekeeping mission, much in the same way that we deployed our forces uh, in Kosovo, etc., because we actually mm-hmm. didn't have um, the same kind of battle array as we did in Desert Storm or elsewhere. Um, but yeah, no, I please continue. But I, I agree with you. Like it, 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 by and large, that is the case. You know what I mean? That they they it was poorly executed on very bad human intelligence. Yeah, and it, and it left me scratching my head. And um, uh, however, um, he also mentioned uh, right around that time, and right around that minute mark in the um, in the podcast, he started also mentioning that you know they're totally incompetent and they they're not able to adapt. They're not able to recover from uh, supply chain shocks. So he mentioned you know the Kerch Bridge uh, getting struck. Uh, last time I checked, you know it already is practically repaired i mean uh, maybe we could back check that later but uh, no, it's yeah repaired. I, I just checked it's it's repaired yeah exactly so you know this podcast wasn't that long ago and it's like wait a minute dude like that already got repaired like you're you know that that got struck and it was a you know show of force of what these um mlrs uh pieces of equipment that we've supplied can achieve you know deep penetration strikes um, but you know they repaired it. You know it's a rail, right? It's it's not. This isn't like super duper. Um, and you know the high Mars. You know unless they get the more upgraded versions with heavier munitions. You know they're they're not strong enough to really do devastating infrastructure uh, shocks. You know that requires a much larger munition. Um, and understand the strike on the Kirk Bridge was done by like literally a truck full of like explosives that was removed. And the driver didn't know that he was hitting on explosives, so it was basically like a like a terrorist type like mo. It was kind of weird. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then as far as Russians adapting their tactics, um, they've tremendously adapted. They adapted very quickly, and we can start seeing the results of that with uh, the victory in Solodar. Where, you know, Wagnar, uh, their mercenary group that's, that was one of the key spearheads in that attack, they're getting all the credit, they're getting all the press because, you know, oh, big scary mercenary corporation, even though our, our military has used contractors out the wazoo for the past 20 years. But, uh, what people also fail to understand that, um, along with Wagnar, um, you had the VDV, uh, deployed again. Um, and they took the outer flanks of Solidar. And as as Wagner was hammering and spearheading, and these tactical 
uh, movements is clearly a demonstration of them adjusting their their battle doctrine and it succeeded and they took Solidar and now they're taking the um, uh, Mikavinka and, and a couple, I can't pronounce their names to the south of Bakhmut. Now Solidar is north of Bakhmut. They're taking uh, positions to the south and they're achieving their their strategic goal of encircling Bakhmut. So he, he, again, he's saying they're incompetent, they're saying this, and yes, in the beginning of this invasion, as we said, definitely a lot of incompetence is there, but these things are getting ironed out, and they're getting ironed out very quickly. And, you know, to the credit of Ukrainians, so have they. They're, they're constantly adjusting and all that. Um, and what cracks me up is, you know, he says that there's incompetence in that leadership, especially in the kill chain. But then later in the in the in the podcast, he mentions how uh, we are in control of the Ukrainian kill chain. You know, you know when we when 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 artillery is striking and when missile high Mars missiles are being fired, especially probably high Mars, uh, we're the ones involved in the kill chain. We're the ones providing them the intelligence. We're providing them now the battle plans. If you look at the counter offenses in Kherson, particularly Kharkiv. Uh, they were 100% like textbook American maneuvers um, that we like as if Americans were in those vehicles ourselves. So yeah, it's actually it's actually called the Thunder Run, which people mm-hmm. like don't rip about. But it's we took Baghdad. Um, it's basically a, an innovation on what is colloquially called Blitzkrieg. And I don't know why at this point we don't just call it Blitzkrieg and like not spurred out about it, but whatever. But the point being is like, yeah, you're absolutely correct. The, the way that the Ukrainian forces were like deployed and their battle array was completely written by an American advisor. I mean, you, there's no way it wasn't. And the, the way that they, you know, carry out mechanized warfare is literally our doctrine for the 1980s. It, it like it's like carbon copied. It's insane. So yeah. continue. Yeah, and and then and then the next sort of minute after that, he mentions how you know kind of further digging into how horrible the Russians and how much casualties they took. Um, and don't get me wrong, you know, both sides are really racking up casualties. And I will say that um, I think Ukraine has taken just as many troop casualties as Russia, if not more, because there weren't as many Russian infantry to begin with. And the reason why I say that is because some of the major reasons why those BTRs, those uh, bat, uh, battalion tactical uh, units, failed or were miserably uh, uh, defeated was because those brigades, what, what people don't realize, is it's high fire firepower, but it, you also need a lot of infantry, right? You know, uh, uh, an IFE and a, tr- and a tank aren't very effective on their own. They're effective with unison to infantry, and infantry on their own aren't effective without having armor, right? And Russia had basically all metal, no blood. And that's why you see all these tanks destroyed. You see all these IFEs. So when you look at the casualty sheet, uh, yes, Russia is taking more equipment uh, uh, casualties. But I would argue that Ukraine didn't have a lot of equipment to begin with. In fact, what's kept them alive is capturing Russian equipment. So they probably have taken more blood. You know, they had more blood and less metal, right? And they, therefore, they probably had, I would surmise, if I, if I was trying to cut through the propaganda, that actual infantry, you know, actual men on the ground casualties is probably similar, Where, uh, but maybe uh, Ukraine took more infantry casualties and Russia definitely took more equipment casualties. And uh, speaking of equipment, he then mentions how, you know, 
the javelins and um, man pads, uh, um, armored, uh, you know, ATGMs were specifically used against trucks, and they got all their trucks wiped out, right? Because that's your major um, piece where you're moving your supply chain is by truck. And now they're, you know, he said like, oh, they're going back to uh, Russia and they're getting school buses and they're getting like ordinary trucks to now move stuff, which is probably true to an extent. But he fails to understand that like if we were doing if we were doing a similar invasion, our supply chain would be just as vulnerable. We move everything by truck also. Okay, you're not going to be airlifting uh, howitzers into position in a in an air defense environment like Ukraine right now. It's going to be moved by truck. And those trucks would be just as vulnerable to the Cornet uh, 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 and other ATGM systems just as Russia was. So I'm just throwing that out there as kind of like a counterpoint. That was a note I had. Um, and, you know, again, to an American, they don't understand these kinds of operations. And, you know, you just mentioned the, the Blitzkrieg of Baghdad. Heck, man, we had, you know, all the the Marines and all these guys were moving so quickly, they were leaving those trucks behind, which then became got became vulnerable to attack okay and that was with a a, a force you know in iraq in 2003 right yeah, so, you know it's it's interesting because it's like we have this false bravado i remember in my time in the military talking to people and like there's this thing in the military sphere that oh we won the afghan war you know like we won every battle it's like dude how can you not learn that you know tactical battles don't imply strategic effects but also you know okay like let's assume that you're a technic like you you won the war the reality is you fought a war against someone that was technologically incapable so there's this false bravado of like saying oh we won every firefight blah 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 but the reality is that like dude you you fought against someone that was far your lesser that didn't like i think one of the most common sightings of a american victory over russia about how a war with russia would go is this incursion that happened in syria where like uh you know a wagner force of so wagner oh, yes. recruits locals uh, like syrians and stuff so it's like led by like maybe 10 15 russians in the command center the rest were like syrians and like other assorted like mercenaries and cell swords who were advancing on a you know uh, YPG which is a Kurdish militia outpost yes. that had you know SEALs stationed there because obviously they're our proxy um, and then basically you know they had no air cover they had no like support they had no artillery support they were just advancing with tanks and like some self propelled guns and you know infantry heavily infantry and it was not even it, it's not even like it's like two companies it's not even a battalion sized element and then we annihilated them with an ac-130 and like you know jdams and like you know uh howitzer like artillery and we were like oh yeah we totally kicked their butt that's how you know the, the russians are gonna go it's like dude you didn't you weren't you were fighting in a situation where russians weren't even fighting you that was Wagner, and Russia is adamant about not supporting them on a military basis to avoid head-on collisions with the United States. The Russians did not interdict with their jet fighters, even though they could. They they have um, jet engine, you know, a, a fighter squadron in Latakia and in, in Syria. They didn't oh, yeah. interdict or give them fire support uh, with you know remote guns and stuff. So it was completely just another circumstance where they were beating down on someone that was farther lesser and think to themselves that they're like 
the shit at war, which is, I mean, a hubris of a very special and, and stupid kind, you know? Yeah, and to quickly go keep on to that talking point, um, two things he said that were just, like, uh, uh, absolutely, just completely mean, was uh, you know, he compared that Russia's performance so far was equivalent to Iraq in 1990, uh, you know, 1991, 1992, the first Gulf War. Absolutely ridiculous comparison. And I want to get digger deeper into that. And then, you know, he, he made another statement where if NATO did get involved right now uh, directly against uh, Russia, it would be a thousand to one casualty rate. Absolutely asinine meme. I don't even know if there's any war in history that I know of where somebody achieved the one, maybe like the Boer Wars, uh, you know, against uh, uh, totally uh, uh, unarmed, like, uh, indigenous, you know, groups and tribes. Like, it's absolutely ridiculous meme for him to be even saying that, especially if any, if you're even remotely educated in modern conflict right now. And uh, just to kind of dig... I know I'm going to sound like super autistic right now, so let's let's pre- prep the audience real quick because I just can't stand, you know, um, everybody just constantly uh, they they scratch their head and, and they, they and then they boast and say that oh you know I, I can't understand how Russia just didn't take the country like in six months and even Peter says this you know he's like oh I thought they would take it and this would be over in six months and you know you have a lot of people mentioning. Uh, uh, Russia, you know, since they have the second largest uh, air force, you know, why couldn't they achieve air superiority and stuff like that? So I want to just dig into that just a little bit. So one, you know, we, we mentioned many times already, you know, the first Gulf War in Iraq. And I don't think a lot of Americans, you know, even though it wasn't that long ago, it's already kind of fading into myth and legend. I mean, it was already super propagandized, right? Um, but even now more so. And so trying to give the audience right now some really strong perspective of what's really what what you real what are you really saying when you say Russia needs to achieve air dominance in uh, in Ukraine okay so in the Gulf War in the first Gulf War in Iraq uh, in the Desert Storm right not I'm not going to speak on Desert Shield Desert Shield was kind of a smaller operation compared to Desert Storm right um, in Desert Storm we had forty three thousand sorties in 43 uh, days. So that's about 930 sorties a day and that's about one sortie per aircraft per day. Okay? And you know, to totally dominate that country, all the targets within that country, because people don't understand you know, hitting an airbase, you can't just hit the airbase once. Okay? Uh, You know, you gotta keep hitting it over and over again. Okay? Because you can quickly repair a hangar, you can quickly repair a runway, you can move aircraft overnight so that, you know, you thought they were there that night and then they were, they were gone because they moved them. So you have to keep it, you know, it's not just, you know, air dominance isn't just, oh, I hit this target once and it's done. Like, no, it's suppression. You're bombing it on a regular basis, right? It, with impunity, essentially. And even within this 43 days, uh, almost a thousand sorties a day, we still took 45 casualties, you know, 45 air, combat aircraft were, were struck down by Iraqi air defenses. Okay, and this is in 1991, right? And at the end of those 43 days, at the end of the operation, you know, if we had to keep going, if we had to keep suppressing uh, uh, the country, uh, a lot of our airframes um, were already uh, hitting their limits, and you're going to have a lot of uh, weapons or a lot of aircraft come off for maintenance, 
okay because you know people don't understand you know maintaining air combat aircraft is pretty intensive right and uh so that shows you that in the gulf war to suppress a country that had a you know re- relatively minuscule air defense and air force uh required 1000 aircraft to fly once all of them once every day for 43 days right and we still took 45 aircraft down to put that in perspective if we were if the united states was to do the same thing to ukraine ukraine is almost double the size of iraq and they have a much more capable air force much more capable air defense much more well-trained uh, operatives uh, behind those uh, equipment so we would have to at least do 2,000 sorties a day well we don't even have that many aircraft to conduct that kind of a dominance okay and so when we look at russia russia has a thousand aircraft total well they can't commit all that aircraft to ukraine they still have to have air bases and other locations of the country to keep you know for rear guard right you can't just put all that aircraft into one conflict you're going to be leaving yourself exposed also only about 60 maybe 80 percent of that aircraft are actually combat ready and so you're probably left with maybe 200 to 300 aircraft that you can devote every day to this conflict in Ukraine, which at best is, you know, 200 to 400 sorties a day. And yet they have been able to heavily suppress the air defenses and air forces of Ukraine across the entire country, not just the, the regions that they took. And how Russia achieves that is through asymmetry by leveraging their uh air defense technologies, S-300, S-400, Buk, Tor, Panzer, you know, these layered air defenses. Um, And then another example is, you know, because of the airspace right now in Ukraine, a lot of Ukrainian aircraft have no choice but to fly low. When you fly low, your aircraft is going to move slower, right? And what, you know, one, one way that Russia uses asymmetry, I'm just using it as a quick autistic example, if you let me indulge, please. Uh, you know, they launch a MiG-31 up into, you know, MiG-31s are very fast-moving interceptors that were used to chase after the SR-71 back in the Cold War. And Russia didn't know if they, if this was even worth, you know, they might want to retire these aircraft. But then they found out that, wait a minute, we can have these guys launch really fast, get to the high altitude so they're out of range of Ukrainians' air defense. He then oh, shoots the, a missile. The MiG, yeah, the MiG-25, uh, the Foxbat. I know yeah, you're talking well, about. Yep. the 31 is the progenitor after that. Um, so it it goes way up high altitude very quickly, detects that MiG-29 that's moving on low altitude to try and hit a Russian target of some kind. So then the MiG shoots a missile at that at that MiG-29, right? Well, the MiG-29 has plenty of time. You know, he knows that that you know they're gonna have plenty of time to detect that missile coming at him. Okay, but what does it do? It forces the MiG-29 to abandon his mission in order to evade that missile. So that MiG-31 just achieved a mission kill. Okay, so he didn't destroy the Ukrainian aircraft, but he achieved a mission kill, right? So here's a quick example of the kind of asymmetry that's going on there. It is totally changing air combat and air warfare, right? And of course, normies have no idea about Desert Storm and how how many sorties it took just to suppress Iraq and how we would need at least double that to achieve a similar effect in Ukraine. And it's just not in the cards for Russia. And they know that. So they use their forces asymmetrically and strategically, and they don't have air dominance, 
but they certainly have air superiority. Otherwise, we would see more and more uh, bombings, you know, bombing runs by Ukrainian uh, air forces, but we don't, right? And I just wanted to give that sort of autistic breakdown because I constantly see this in chats. I constantly see it in mainstream media that, oh, why didn't they take it in six months? Why didn't they take this? Oh, man, we, America is so amazingly powerful because look what we did in Iraq. And then he goes on air, Zihan, and he's sitting there saying, oh, uh, uh, Russia's performance is similar to uh, the Iraqi forces in 1990. Uh, absolutely ridiculous. And by the way, this entire, you know, 200 to 400 sorties a day that Russia has been doing, plus uh, missile bomb uh, bombardments from their um, fleet in the Black Sea, uh, they've in, over the past six months, they've only taken 50 aircraft out, actual combat aircraft. I'm not including um, helicopters at the moment. I'm talking about actual fighters right. and strike bombers. Right. Um, to add to your point, to add to your point, which is probably the, the, the widest most glaring issue that like analysts and normies alike don't see is that the doctrine of the Russian Federation is much that of the Soviet Union. And what I mean by air warfare is that they chose instead to like, so, okay, for instance, in the United States, we have a lot of emphasis on air power to augment as combat power a force multiplier on the battlefield to destroy the enemy by fires through by the air, usually. Um, well, the Russians are like, okay, we don't have the same industrial base and like capability as Western countries to field a like crap ton of airframes, right? So what they chose to do is do an interdiction model. So uh, to nullify air combat uh, capability, uh, the Russians instead focused on having you know AA as a prominent like uh, part of the defensive air shield um, that they they are able to you know. Uh, sprawl out amongst their different units so for instance in the united states we actually don't have that strong of a um uh you know uh, air anti-air interdiction um circumstance that we usually do right but like in russia russia they have actually doubled the like anti-air gun batteries for divisional and like brigade sized elements because their their aim their aim is to focus on artillery fires to destroy the enemy, not air power. Yeah. But anyway, I yeah. get a, I get ahead of myself. Yeah. But let's move yeah, yeah. on to the next point. What was your next point, by the way? Um, my next point, really, you know, that kind of wraps up sort of the, you know, in those first fifteen minutes, he kind of threw all these like little details. Oh, blowing up trucks, incompetency. Uh, they can't achieve air power. They they can't achieve maneuverability. So I'm just kind of countering all that. And me giving the analysis or the or the kind of breakdown uh, with uh, the Gulf War and all that is hopefully putting people in perspective that um, they don't have anywhere near the air force that we had and all this, and yet they are achieving they are t- they are taking a landmass that's twice the size of Iraq slowly. All this is happening slowly. You can say you can argue, but you know such is this war, and such is a war against a adversary that's all, that's pretty well equipped. And remember, they probably would have had even more success if we weren't coming in there, managing the kill chain directly, managing the intelligence directly, providing them ridiculous amounts of ammunition, um, weapons. Okay, and then and then taking it even further and being like, hey, we're going to plan your counteroffensive. So people really need to. Put in perspective, they need these perspectives. They need, uh, you know, us giving this kind of perspective because otherwise, you're really going to get swallowed up into this brouhaha 
of you know kind of like what you said earlier with the whole Wagner um, fight that happened in in uh, Syria. Absolutely ridiculous. You know, it was even off. It was like on Fox News. It was on like every major channel and, and, and uh, media output where it's just like, oh yeah, we annihilated like three hundred of them and blah blah blah, like as if it was some kind of crazy epic battle. When really it was just, hey, we dropped a bunch of like guns on them. Like it's just. Uh, it's just ridiculous, and I, I want to transition now to kind of, you know, sort of after that 15 minutes, he kind of went into uh, the demographics, which we talked about already. We kind of talked about Russia's demographic situation, which is the same situation that more or less that pretty much every other nation is facing, um, except for, you know, th- the third world uh, areas such as Southeast Ch- Ch- uh, Asia and uh, Africa. And then he kind of goes into... Um, he briefly starts talking about how they start talking about how Putin, you know, he's surrounded by yes men. He's surrounded by men that aren't telling him like legitimately what what's really going on and just creating an illusion and that he's purged so much of his leadership that the leadership now doesn't have the sort of brain capacity, if you will, to really move forward and innovate and problem solve. And I just sit there and when I hear him talk about this. I'm sure it's true uh, to an extent. It is true to an extent that you know you purge hard like that, and you don't have anybody too afraid to speak up. Um, you know, he mentioned this also with China, and I absolutely think that that's definitely true in China. Um, but I, I, I don't know why, and maybe I can get your opinion too. But I couldn't help but think that the same is probably true in Europe, the Eurozone, and the United States. I mean, look at our... I mean, look at the United States, dude. I mean, like, yeah, you're... Look at Biden. Look at that guy. (laughs) Dude, I'm telling you, like, um, if you have any experience with the modern military, unless if you're, like, a diehard liberal, like, you are actively being, like, persecuted and forced out of the military. I mean... This is happening on an institutional level, not even a personal level, right? Because, like, if you go to Russia and you talk to a low-level, like, cop or whatever, like, or military service member or whatever, like, they have people of all different stripes. They have communists to, like, fascists to Democrats, you know, like, uh, you know, small-D Democrats, not big-D. And um, basically, like, all kinds of different, like you know, personal convictions, but obviously as you go up the, the ladder, you have to be more of a Putinite. But in America, it's like top down, like everything, everyone from your smallest janitor to everyone has to be completely on board or you're actively like treated like, you know, as, you know, a second class citizen. But you're absolutely right. And I think, um, I think American combat power is one of those things that like we're basing our personal prestige off of the second world war. And many people don't understand that our victory in the second world war hinges more on our industrial capacity and our ability to logistically sustain the rest of the world in combat, right? As opposed to actually being proficient war fighters ourselves. And like, that's, that's something that people don't understand. And then secondarily, okay, like, you know, uh, let's assume that we got good at war or something, but at, at the end of the day, we didn't, right? Like, we, we we're the reason why we're we're considered the preeminent military power is because we're the preeminent economic power. All right, legionnaires, we had enemy EW attacking us. This electronic warfare. So here we're back. Um, just a, a couple more questions, if we could tra- just transition here. 
what are some other points, final points here that Zihan that you you thought what was like the most disturbing or the most incorrect? If you could just enlighten us. Yeah, just so some final comments to kind of wrap up um, this whole Russia segment of the podcast. Um, and these last uh, points are pretty salient. So he, you know, for a moment there, he was, uh, it was right around the part of the podcast where they're talking about the different propaganda tactics. And he mentions, and he kind of does a Freudian slip where um, he talks about Trump and he talks about how, imagine if Trump, uh, in order to galvanize his base, and he says the radical evangelicals or the evangelical base of America. And I remember when he says that he has a Freudian slip where, how can I describe this without upsetting half the country? So it's weird that, you know, when he's talking about the pro-Russian propaganda that's trying to galvanize and reshape the narrative for Russians to be for the war, he mentions Trump and he mentions uh, evangelicals, and I kind of see that as a Freudian slip. slip. Because remember, Zihan is a mouthpiece of, you know, one of the many mouthpieces or nodes, if you will, of the oligarchy and the elite here in the United States. So it just goes again to show, you know, why are they always attacking the right, and especially the Christian right? And it, it always fascinates me because, you know, when I think of an evangelical Christian, I, I just see a, a conservative i just see someone who's just you know they're kind of brainwashed on some things that may not be right but yet they are still the elite sees them as um kind of like a threat domestically and that's why you know i think our circles and those of us on the far right we need to kind of back off our rhetoric that's against the normie conservative because that's kind of like a bastion of resource that we need to actually tap into so I just kind of want to make that comment. And then he also, Zion also mentions um, how for the past 20 years we've been, you know, the GWAT, right? Global War on Terror. And how that's actually hindered us in actually engaging in uh, conventional warfare with a, you know, a symmetric adversary such as Russia, such as China. And he correctly makes the point that, you know, the hole in, an, in analytics and analysts and talent in, in the industrial complex is basically long-term planning, especially logistics and weapon systems that are actually going to be effective, not in a counterinsurgency, but in a actual direct conflict with an adversary. And military industrial complex is already making very big strides, um, you know, with the announcement of a lighter tank that's being produced. Um, you know, they're already kind of moving in those directions. Um, however, I would mention that, you know, not everything from GWAT isn't cross, able to cross over. Um, you know, we had very intense urban combats uh, in Iraq, you know, Fallujah and Najaf. Um, and urban combat, you know, like that uh, is always intense. And that's definitely going to be a transferable sort of uh, skill set into a modern conflict like we see in Ukraine, where there is a lot of urban uh, combat as they take city after city, right? And also, um, you know, later, maybe a topic for a later date, you know, I always found it sus suspicious that for 20 years we just had this hubris where we're not going to be fighting any conventional adversaries uh, and we're only going to be dealing with insurgencies. And then we fine-tuned that uh, counterinsurgency force 
it almost always made me feel that it was kind of nefarious in nature, um, possibly in the future with a you know American civil conflict of some kind. Um, and another thing that's definitely transferable, you know, he kind of gives an example that the intelligence apparatus of the United States basically was hyper focused on minute details like, oh, there's an enemy combatant in this building and we need to know what side the hinges of the door on for the breach for our special forces. And what cracks me up is all that fine tuning of our intelligence apparatuses to get some, a minute detail like that is definitely transferable to a conflict like Ukraine or a conventional conflict. And that is why you see Ukraine being able to make precision strikes and have really good intel because all the intelligence apparatus that was focused on insurgents uh, in Afghanistan is now focused on huge uh, mass formations and supply chains of huge military forces in uh, Ukraine right now. So that's definitely transferable. I mean, he's kind of making it sound like it was a detriment. It's the intelligence side. I said what it, it would not be, but you know maybe some of the aspects in our uh, military-industrial complex. And another comment, kind of adding to that, is you know in the headlines we see lots of lots of headlines kind of capturing you know constantly talking about the amount of equipment we're sending to uh, Ukraine. And you even have some in the DoD. You know, I, I remember seeing like a Navy admiral not too long ago. Uh, at a at a conference or so, uh, basically saying that hey, we're like wasting a lot of our uh, ammunition, we're wasting a lot of our equipment, and we may not be able to. We're getting to a point where we might not be able to replenish it for our own selves. I haven't been able to figure out um, how much of these statements are true or not true. Um, the most I've seen from my research, and this would have to be dug way more into, but. Um, I think in 1997, there was an audit in you know, the DOD um, on how many artillery shells we had. And because of just years of the Cold War, just building up, building up, building up artillery shells, um, the, the audit concluded, like I think, like 21 million shells uh, in our arsenals. And then they estimated that Russia had around 30 million or more. And... That's why, you know, in, uh, so far we've transferred, I think, over a million shells to Ukraine. I think in total they're saying that we have three million in total. But I'm, I'm just sitting here scratching my head. What happened to the other 18, 17 million? I mean, I know 1997 what, was <laughs> what happened. What happened ago, to but... the, yeah, what happened to the uh, uh, $2 trillion in the Pentagon, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, part of me is... Part of me just scratching my head. I mean, I know, you know, there's maintenance costs in, but I mean, if Russia is pulling stores of weapons that are rusty and they just retrofit them and get them ready for, for battle, I mean, I don't see why we wouldn't be able to do so. So this idea that we don't have enough arms to sense them, I kind of am suspicious about that, which is why maybe his 40 and slip that he said earlier about how this is a decades long conflict. They know that we, you know, if that 20 million is still floating around, even if it's only half that, 10 million, right? Um, that means we can send a million shells a year for 10 years, right? Because we've it's almost been a year since the start of the invasion, and we've sent a million shells, right? So I don't know how I feel about the whole arms thing. Um, I definitely think tanks and equipment like that are much harder to replace, but shells and things like this, man pads. 
who the heck knows how large our stockpiles are and i don't think 20 years ago is that that too long ago you know and just wanted to make a comment on that and uh really um the arms uh situation has more to do with our european allies not sending as much as they should particularly germany right that's kind of been the thorn thorn in their side um and really just the last comment to kind of tie off this whole uh russian commentary that zihan gives here and this one is probably people watching the podcast probably you know you probably missed this but this was probably his biggest Freudian slip was at, at towards the end there before they try transition into talking about China. And he basically says that, you know, Russia is now scarier than ever because, you know, they're aggressively taking these uh, positions. They're aggressively taking, you know, they want to take over Europe. They want to take over uh, these choke points that he uh, describes. But he also mentions how they are re-embracing their cultural aspects, particularly their religion. And it's funny how he says the Soviet Union was less scary in the eyes of Europe and the West. Um, was less scary because they were putting aside, this is, I think, almost what he said exactly, putting aside their weird religion, <laughs> putting aside their weird religion and morphing into a... Uh, a well uh, thought out and, and developed technocracy so he literally said the word technocracy and and you know he's saying that he's saying that them doing this putting aside their religion and becoming a more reformed technocracy was a good thing that the west viewed on the Soviet Union so there's multiple things to unpack here one if you were a baby boomer and you grew up in the Cold War, that would be mind-boggling to you because we were all brainwashed to think that this was the greatest evil that's ever existed on Earth and that they are our greatest adversary during the entire Cold War. And now he's sitting here saying that, oh, actually, you know, they were viewed favorably by the elite because they were doing and practicing uh, – you know, moving into a direction that they also want to move to. So that's essentially what he's, remember, he's a mouthpiece. He's part of the accepted sort of folk that are now in the in circle. He's probably not in the top inner circles, but he's relatively in the, in the in circle, in the in crowd, if you will, of DOD, the, uh, uh, of DC, and all these elites, all these mouthpieces, right? And what are these guys obsessed with? These guys are obsessed with the notion of of moving all societies, not just the West, not just the East, but moving all societies into a technocracy. And, you know, this is why over the years we've had the dismantling of monarchies, a dismantling of strong decentralized republics, and everything is moving into these unionized, centralized economic and political blocks like the EU. Um, and then, of course, as much as they relent about China and Xi, China is a perfect shining example of the kind of technology they want to achieve, um, particularly those of elites that are from Silicon Valley. So it, it's a huge Freudian slip if you're if you're someone who's been studying these subject matters and you've been kind of seeing, you know, from their own mouthpieces, um, uh, from their own literature, you know, from 
guys from George Soros and others, um, you know, uh, Harry, Henry Kissinger, all these guys, they are all been in favor of technocracy. And this even goes back to the first te- technocracy societies of the 1920s and 30s where, you know, they had their own sort of um, departments in many different universities like Stanford. And they've been wanting to achieve this and they've been moving societies in that direction. And what, what I find interesting is it seems like they don't mind when a totalitarian society that's anti-religion, anti-God, anti-its cultural heritage, as long as it's moving, especially if it's moving towards a technocracy, even if it's a rival. But as soon as that well, rival is doing, you know, promoting their culture, promoting their people, making nationalistic decisions, next, then they're upset about it. You know? Right. I mean, you have to understand it's a feature. A technocracy or a technocratic society is at odds with, you know, religion or, you know, whatever. So it's part of the deal that, like, there's a reason why, um, like, liberals used to be so about, like, China until Xi Jinping. It, it there's a reason why like these liberals used to like literally betray the United States of America during the Cold War and then they switch camps because first of all conservatives tend to be very stupid they think that we were fighting the Russians during the Cold War when in reality we were fighting communists because we were friends during uh you know the Civil War the Russian Navy you know protected American harbors like John Paul Jones after the Revolutionary War went to fight for the Russian Tsar. I mean, if you go even further during the Bolshevik Revolution, we sent a division of men, 10,000 men on an expeditionary force to Siberia to help interdict and fight the communists. We have always been anti-communists. And that's the thing is that like these conservatives need to get wrap their stupid head around their little cow like brain around is the fact that. We're not against Russians. We're against communists. And communists are not in Russia anymore. They're here. They're making the decisions. They're on YouTube. And they're telling you what to think. Start thinking for yourself. And I'm glad that you went into all this detail. I really do appreciate it. And uh, I think we're going to – I'm going to have to invite you for another segment about the PRC, which is the People's Republic of China, here soon. Would you be down for that, War Chief? Yes, yes, I'd be down because there's a lot to unpack there because, again – uh, I mean, the re- we had to address Russia first because the rhetoric uh, that Zion had on that podcast was just astronomical uh, rhetoric. Um, and then he, he kind of gives a more less less the rhetoric is a little bit less, but it's still pretty bad when he starts talking about China. So, yeah, we definitely got to get in there and unpack that. I'm definitely down perfect. for another episode. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on. This is General Lance. This is the War Room signing off.